I think I may be the most annoyed person I've ever met. And if you think you can beat me on that, then let's have a conversation. Um, I find I get annoyed by so many things. I'll tell you the two things that tend to annoy me the most, and they this pop up out of nowhere, right? One are loose threads. If, if I see a loose thread on me or on someone else, I have this impulse to pull the loose thread. Um, now, how many of you have ever tried to start just pulling loose threads? Yes, and you know how that usually ends up with more threads, right? Like you start unweaving something, um, and a lot of times it's because I just get like, I don't need no scissors, I'll just get this done, rip it off right here. And you're like, that's a small thing to get annoyed over. And I'm, I would say, well, I'm a small-minded person at times. And so just sometimes things are annoying. The second thing that really, really gets on my nerves, uh, I get annoyed by, uh, is uh, when I hear coffee being slurped. Uh, I, I, and I realized something this past week. I get this from my dad. Like I was talking to my dad on, my, my, uh, uh, on the phone. And I was trying to, you're like, that, that was a really long time to get to the phone. <laughs> do a banana. Um, and I was, I was trying to chop up something and then do some salt and pepper because I was making dinner. And my dad's like, Robin, what is that noise? And I'm like, yeah, I got this from you. Like, that's all I could think about. Like, I got this from you. So, like, I remember the first time I realized how annoyed I get with coffee slurping was when I was leading a team through Morocco in my early 20s. And every morning we would have these sit down and devotionals and, you know, we'd get these coffees and croissants and whatever else and start talking and reading the Bible. And all of a sudden I would hear a, <sighs> and there was this like 18 year old girl who did this. And I was like this raging, like Iranian dude. And it took, it took the Holy Spirit, Jesus, Dumbledore, every power in the world to keep me from just going full rage and eight. You know what I mean? Like on this innocent person who just wanted to like sip her coffee. That's all she wanted to do. And I wanted to teach her like, you, you can't do that. Like you gotta stop it. Um, and even like Suzanne, my wife can tell you, this is an ongoing thing in our home. She, she doesn't do that. It's like water bottles when I hear a crunching water bottle. You know, by the way, you think I'm a small person, all right? I know things about you all, all right? And I have a mic right now, so just so you know. But like, we all got stories, we all got stuff. Um, so, so there's mine. So here's the thing, though. Have you ever, though, been annoyed by something enough, like it just kind of finally catches your attention? And it does have to be something as petty as that. It could be that you're annoyed enough by like, hey, I've put on the 10, 20, 30, whatever pounds it is, it's wintertime, and it's spring, and it's time like, to like, no longer have that. It could be that you get annoyed enough about maybe your kind of glass ceiling in your career, and you start wanting to do something about it. It could be that you get annoyed enough that you're so codependent in your relationships that you end up always kind of being the person has to manage everyone else around you. It could be you get so annoyed, just whatever it may be. Maybe you get annoyed about what you see in the world around you. And sometimes what we'll find is if you start paying attention, if we pay attention to the things that annoy us, we even start pulling a string. And then when we do that, though, like there's like a, a ripple effect. There's like a consequences that come with it. And I think if I could put anything is that I see happening in this passage, I see that. 
Like, I, I see Paul getting annoyed with something here. He's willing to pull the string on it, and it takes him somewhere, somewhere that he wasn't necessarily trying to go. But he was willing to go, and we'll find he had the tools to go into it and even to, like, do a greater work in the midst of it all. So I'm kind of speaking more in an amorphous way, so let's just dive into the passage because we titled the sermon, Annoyances and Uproars. And that's what happens here with Paul. He gets annoyed enough to where eventually it kind of brings an uproar. So that said, let's just jump into the passage. We'll start at verse 16. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, and let's just kind of pause for a second. There's nothing intentional that starts off in this passage. These, these people, these guys are just living life. They're going about like their way. A matter of fact, you've heard a lot of people talk about Matthew 28, for example, and it says to go into all the world. And, and many would contend that what it's trying to say is as you're going into the world, like as you're living your life, as things are happening around you, as you kind of keep stepping into things in front of you that you naturally would. So it starts off very innocently, right? Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. What? Like, as you're going to get coffee, as you're going just to church, as you're going just to do the thing in front of you, they're met by, it says, a female slave, a girl, in the Greek that would be a young girl. So you got to think within the range of like 10 to 15 years old. All right, so as they're going, they bump into a 10 to 15-year-old girl who is possessed demonically, can tell the future, is enslaved, which means she's owned, and like, this is her life. Like, I'm just going to get some coffee. I'm just kind of going to work. And boom, here's this thing in front of me. And so we read on, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So she's a valuable piece of property, a 10- to 15-year-old girl. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And you could look at this and think that she is trying to agitate them. Maybe so. We find there's a demon there. It could be that Sometimes just little kids want to be around something that seems safe, right? And so this kid is following around these adults, and she is sensing something there, and she's just kind of putting on them what she does. Like, she just kind of sees things. And it says um, she kept this up for many days. So it's not like Paul saw this the first day and was like, oh, that's not okay. It's not even that Paul saw that the second day and thought, oh, that's not okay. Like, this went on many days. Now, if you were to see a 12-year-old girl who was uh, demonically possessed and was owned by other human beings who were making money off of her, would that catch your attention? Yeah, you're like, of course that'd catch my attention. Yes, please say yes to that, okay? That's a really important part of this message. You would say, yes, that'd catch my attention. You're like, so why did that not catch the attention maybe of Paul the first time? Well, because it was normal. 
But this situation is just a normal thing. This happens. When you have a world where it is okay to have slaves, where you have a world where women have very few rights, these kind of things keep happening. So eventually, it says here, um, it says, finally, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit and deciding to want to do something very godly that would change the world, said something to her. No, it doesn't say that. Here's what it says. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. He became so annoyed what was happening in front of him, behind him, he eventually was like, this has got to stop. You know, it's like, as he's going to worship, now it's turning into as he's going to get some pita, right? And it turns to as he's going to get some like coffee. Then it turns to as he's going just to kind of talk to his friends. And this little girl is following him everywhere. And eventually it's like my daughter really loves to say mine and Suzanne's names a lot, like, you know, mama and daddy. And even last night, I was trying to finish my sermon, and all I could hear every minute was Charlotte going, mama, and then something, mama, and then something. She kept going on, and, and I was like, dear Lord, just shut my child up. Like, that's so many mamas, you know? And Suzanne's like, yes, baby, yes. And so this morning, I had to come to her and be like, you're amazing, and I'm not. Because if she said that that often, I could not do it, right? Like, just please see me, please see me, please see me, please see me. So Paul gets so annoyed, he decides to pull the string as he's going about his day. You know, as we go about our days, as we go about maybe work, shopping, to the grocery store, as we go, we are met by all kinds of things that are unjust but are still the norm. We don't have little girls who are demon possessed, owned by people. We have people who are in poverty. We have people who literally have to sleep in 30-degree weather and squat somewhere, right? Um, we, have, um, we have people who have been so beat down by a capitalist system that actually was built off their backs, that they have no other choice but to stay in the systems that they're in. We literally have that. It is the norm. It is unjust, but we have it. And it's, one of, it's a very privileged thing to be able to pay attention to something like that or not, wouldn't you say? Like, if, if I get to go to the grocery store and I don't have to pay attention to a person who is struggling with whatever it is that I don't struggle with, it's kind of like, oh, well, I mean, I can be like, I'm going to go buy, you know, $100 of coconut water and go home. Not, not that I do that, but I could do that. Like, I could literally do that if I wanted to. I can cut that off. I can move on. Like, Paul could have cut this off and, and kind of moved on. But at some point in time, the question is, just like here for Paul, will we get annoyed enough by something to turn around and address it? Like, will something catch our attention enough times to simply go, this isn't okay? Like, I can't go back to my posh life and my good vacations or my good whatever else I have. At some point, I've got to maybe turn around and go, hey, this is where I am, and this is what I have to address. You don't have to. You don't have to. It didn't say that Paul had to turn around. It just said that he got so annoyed. And let's understand something. 
The text doesn't tell us or lend to us that he was to serve because of how unjust the situation was. Doesn't tell us that. It'd be really helpful if it did. It'd be like, he was so annoyed by how unjust it all was, he turned around and he said, this no longer can be. He doesn't do that. He's annoyed that this thing keeps happening around him and he decides to pull the thread. But it seems to imply that he knew something about that because he doesn't tell the girl to be quiet. He tells the oppression in her to be quiet. So he actually speaks to the thing that's part of her oppression. So actually, maybe he is. He's speaking to this thing that is bringing her down, that is ruining her life. That's a part of the norm in, in the culture. See, maybe it's on his mind, and maybe he sees something that needs to be done. And what's interesting is, like, he realizes the girl, by doing that, he realizes the girl is innocent. The girl is innocent. She can't help what she has. Which, by the way, I bet that would help us at times, wouldn't it? To realize that people are more innocent in what they're dealing with than what we realize. Sometimes people have decisions that they make because those are the, that's the only decision they can make. They don't get other decisions to make. They kind of have to do that. But we think everybody has a choice the way I had a choice, but they don't really have a choice because, like, they didn't grow up where you grew up. So then we have to maybe look at that. Sometimes if we're willing to look at it long enough, it gets annoying. And here's what happens, though. When things get annoying long enough and you decide to finally pay attention to it and to pull the string, you're going to upset people. You're going to start un un upending the systems at play. Because here's what happens. Let's read on. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So they've lost their meal ticket. I mean, they are, they are PO'd, like they are ticked. Because they're like, everything was fine. This whole system was working out for me just fine. I had a seared enough conscience for this to make sense and for me to still get the money that I need. It was fine until Paul pulled the string. He wasn't even pulling the string, by the way, because like Paul didn't go to Philippi to pull the string. He went to Philippi because God gave him a vision to go to Macedonia. And he kept stepping into things. We talked about this, Drew did last week. Like it's about just kind of stepping into the things in front of you. He just kind of kept stepping into things and it led him to this point. He went there to give the gospel that Jesus is Lord to a people that actually believed that Nero, who was in power, was the ultimate authority. He was like, no, there's something different and better for you. And as he was going, he was pulling strings. And so these people realized their mill ticket's gone. And then it says, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I like in the ESV, it says, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Disturbing our city. Like it was like a house of cards. Like the whole city was in on it. The whole city was in on stuff like this. Did it mean the whole city was making plans together, having lots of little girls to run around and be enslaved? 
No, not saying that. But if everybody keeps turning a blind eye to little girls being running around being enslaved and they don't do something about it, now they become culpable. They become a part of the system. And so they're saying, like, the whole city now is being disturbed. And I love it in the Greek. The word is ekterasso, ekterasso. And it means to agitate, like to agitate, uh, agitate. So like annoying, like, oh, that's really annoying. But now to agitate, and I was like, okay. But like the, they put a visual with this word in the Greek, and the visual is like to stir up water. I grew up in the country on about 20, 30 acres of land with about eight other human beings. That was it. They were family, okay? These, it wasn't like random, end of the world kind of thing, right? So like, so anyway, we grew up together on all this land. And, and honestly, like we had uh, channels four, uh, nine, and, and 27. That was it. We didn't have a lot. To, and so you had to go outside a lot. I had to go outside and do things. And so my, my grandparents, because they owned all this land, they built like a, a, a fishing pond. It, it, it wasn't a lake, but it's way bigger than a pond. So it's a, a pake. I don't know. Like it, it was just in between. It was big. And he, they kept it stocked with, with fish. And then we had a, a large swimming pool that we could go to. So they gave us things to do. And I would um, go regularly and I would uh, take an aluminum bat and play by myself and throw up rocks and play home run derby right? Like I had a big imagination as a child because I had uh, nobody else in my life. Isn't that sad? But like I just learned to be like, well, I'm, I'm going to go hit rocks across the pond today. <laughs> that's, what, that's my Saturday. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I would, you know, like I would really get into it, my imagination. I would try different batting stances, the different players I liked. And, and then I kept noticing because I didn't make it across the pond a lot. A lot of rocks would hit the water and I would just watch them hit the water, and I would just watch the ripple effects. And other days, I'd go out and just take a rock and throw it into the water and see how far out the ripples would go. Like, I was always intrigued. Even to this day, if I'm near water, like near a lake, I have to go take rocks and throw them at some point in time. It's just in me. It's like, I don't know what that is. I just have to go see, see how far the ripples go out. And that's kind of what this word's getting across, that eventually, if you get annoyed by something long enough and you pay attention to it, you'll start throwing rocks and systems and places, and you'll find there's a ripple effect happening around you. It may not even be that big at first, but it kind of keeps, keeps going. And I love that visual. And it also reminded me of a story of a woman named Agnes Ganja Baranju. Agnes Ganja Baranju, you're like, never heard of her. Okay. We'll just go by Agnes, because the rest of the part, that's, just, like, that's harder to pronounce than Greek. All right, so Agnes. Agnes was born in 1910 in what is today known as Macedonia, northern Macedonia. And she was, her father was Nikolai, and he was a, he was a good man, good man. And he was, they, they weren't necessarily like super wealthy, but they were well-to-do in a sense. And uh, uh, when she was about eight years old, though, her father died. There was a lot of political unrest um, and so that combination of her father dying, political unrest, really led to her family going through a, a really tumultuous time. She found around that time, like around then 10, 12 years old, um, a love for religion, for the faith that she was raised in, Catholicism, and then decided eventually that she wanted to become a nun. 
And then eventually she decided that she wanted to, to move to India and uh, to, to start teaching in school. And she was so moved by the story of, uh, of one of the, the patron saints of missions, a woman by the name of Teresa de Lasso, that she decided to name herself Teresa. Now, we've come to know Agnes as Mother Teresa. That's how we know Agnes. Um, we didn't realize where Agnes was from all the time. We just knew that Agnes had a vision and a desire to go and do something somewhere. And she just kind of kept following that trail. And she eventually ended up in India. She was a teacher for 20 years in Calcutta, in eastern Calcutta, and then eventually became like the headmaster. But then, as one writer puts it, Agnes, or, or Mother Teresa, um, became increasingly disturbed by the poverty around her. She became increasingly disturbed by the poverty around her. She was seeing a lot of things that were not okay in her world that she was in. And so she decided the best way then for her to like give her energy and time was to step out of teaching school and to eventually start, um, start a, a, a mission. And they called it like Missionaries of Charity. And their whole idea for the Missionaries of Charity was to simply be a convent of nuns who went around the city and literally like loved on people, brought them food, picked up babies. There's even stories of people who would bring her babies and leave them. And she would say to herself, well, now this baby has a second mother. And she would bring that baby in. And she had a real desire for people in Calcutta to be able to have dignity because there was so much, so many things indignant. People were dying on the streets. People dealing with leprosy. She even created a a colony, a home that's about 50 miles outside of Calcutta where people could go and live and have dignity. I know this because I spent a summer in Calcutta when I was 21. I, didn't, I went to Calcutta because I thought, Jesus, I thought people needed to be able to hear Jesus and go to heaven, which isn't wrong. I'm not saying that. You'll hear me. But you start looking around long enough and all the people laying up on the streets and how little children are being run by the mafia and all the money that the children get from, from you, they have to take straight to the mafia. It's not for them. And all the women who carry babies on the streets that are trying to feed their babies, actually, when you give them money, they have to take it to the mafia. You start going, we're dealing with something bigger here than fire insurance when they die. That's all I knew how to give them. And so I started going to these homes that Mother Teresa had started, homes for dignity. And the first home she started was a home called Caligot. And Caligot was the home for the destitute and the dying. She literally wanted to create a space where people could die in dignity. She didn't come up with a vaccination for all their diseases. She didn't come up with an amazing way of bringing all the children in for an orphanage and then giving them back out. She simply wanted to give people dignity. And she started pulling strings around her. And what it led to, in a positive consequence, was tens of thousands of people coming to join her. What it led to were influencing hundreds of thousands of people to do similar work. And even for us, inspiring millions of people to think of her story since. A woman 
under five feet tall. I think she probably was about 4'8", 4'9", from northern Macedonia. Her name was Agnes, who just simply said, like, well, I'm going to go here. I'm going to try this. My plans are now to do these things, but now I'm annoyed by these other things, so I'm going to pull that string and see where it leads to. And it led her to giving people dignity around her. You know, they don't have a lot of privilege in Macedonia. Do you know that? Like near the privilege we get to have in the West. And yet she took what she had and she applied it the best she could, and that's where it led her. You know, I wonder for me, and I'm sure you can wonder this for yourself, what is it that keeps me, maybe what keeps us from pulling those strings we see in our city? I don't have to name them. I can name a couple. Memphis is a hub for one of the largest sex trafficking spots in the world. Crazy. Crazy. Memphis has one of the largest um, LGBTQ homeless populations in the United States. Um, Memphis is one of the most impoverished cities in the nation. There's a lot of things that are happening outside these walls that are crazy, like that are just detrimental. It's hard to want to pay attention to it. I'll, I'll give you an example why it's so hard. A couple weeks ago, so... Uh, uh, it's just been a big year, a lot going on for Abadies and whatever else. We're fine. Don't worry. But it's just been a lot. And so I remember I told my therapist at the end of, of January, I was like, hey, there's so much going on. I'm going to probably crash in two weeks. And my therapist is like, well, that's not good. So you need to actually do things to work on that. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But just letting you know, I'm kind of profit in this way. I know how this is going to go down. So I started making plans to take care of myself two weeks from then. You guys are like, you're insane. <laughs> Maybe you have a spirit. Maybe so. And so I made plans to like go away. Uh, I think it was like Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, Thanksgiving weekend. There you go. Uh, Valentine's Day weekend, the 15th, 16th. I was going to go to a hermitage and just have a couple of days of silence and kind of get some rest and, and, and meditation. And, and um, because then that next week, I, I was going to be away the whole week uh, doing some, some, uh, therapeutic, intensive work with another guy that I do some work with named Jeff Schulte in a ministry called Tin Man. So we were going to be away all week doing some other work. So I knew that I was going to be away from the house a lot. Um, I had to make sure it's all going to work. Charlotte came down with the flu that week. She was in bed for like four days. Um, and I remember like talking to Suzanne before I left, like for the little hermitage thing, like I probably shouldn't go. She's like, she's only going to want me, just go. And I thought, okay, I'll go. <laughs> and I went. But here's the thing, because I was going to be gone that Tuesday, the only day I was going to be home was Monday. Monday had to work. Monday had to be the day when everything came together for the Abadies, because if not, we were going to have a bad week, right? A really bad week. You, you're following, okay? So we get to Monday morning, and I get Charlotte up, and I get Charlotte ready, and I'm like, this day's got to work. This day's got to work, right? So I get her. She's sitting at the breakfast table, and she's having her cereal. 
when she's not fighting me over, praise the Lord, right? So I'm making coffee. I'm actually getting into a good mood, which is rare for me in general. So I'm actually like not annoyed in a decent mood. And all of a sudden at 7.15, I hear a doorbell ring. And I'm like, what is that? And I look around the, hall, the corner of the hallway and I see a person standing there. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? I go to the door. Charlotte's like in her t-shirt underwear, you know, like she's just bebopping around. I open the door and there's a dude in front of me whose name is Adam, because I know Adam. I'm friends with Adam. I've been friends with Adam for about four or five years now. Adam is dripping wet, um, partly because of water and partly because of bodily fluids. Adam had been jumped the night before and all of his money was taken. Um, Adam also deals with a terminal disease. Um, Adam's a person of color. And it was 32 degrees outside. I really needed Monday to work. And I had a choice. Here's something that's disturbing, right? So I'm like, okay, Adam, come in, sit down. Like he's crying, like a grown man's crying because how life has not worked. He comes in, I have to spread out blankets on the couch. All the time I'm like, I need my wife's day to work well for her. I need my daughter's morning to go well over here. So I got people in different corners of the house, right? And I got this man lying on my couch. So then I'm hustling back and forth now through the house, trying to make sure everybody's gonna be okay. This is all gonna work out, don't worry about it. And guess what? It did not work out. Nothing went right. Like, my daughter decides to have a breakdown because she can't wear, like, her princess tiara to school. That's a thing for four-year-olds, right? I'm trying to get my wife out the door so she can be good. I'm trying to get this guy settled. All of a sudden, me and Suzanne, like, we're ships passing in the night, right? I'm trying to get this guy's clothes and get him my clothes on him so I can wash his clothes and dry them. So then I could get him out the door, and my, wife, my daughter out the door, my wife out the door. By the way, it was one of the worst mornings we have had in years. It also ended terribly that night because everybody's just tired and worn out. And then I left on Tuesday the rest of the week. You know, it costs something to pay attention to things that are not okay. There are always consequences. The consequence was for us, by pulling that string, our day was ruined. Part of our week was ruined. And yet, because we can afford the house we live in and live where we live and have the life that we have, eventually things got back to normal. Now, is that a wrong thing that we get to have that situation? Not at all. But it is a thing. It is a thing. It's called privilege. Is that a wrong thing to have privilege? Is that a wrong thing that someone gave you that privilege? You're not the one that did something to somebody else 100, 200 years ago. And yet, we still stand on the shoulders and be able to reap the benefits of those things given to us. And at some point in time, the question has to be asked of the church, will we pay attention to the things around us long enough to pull the strings to see what happens next? And it doesn't mean that it has to go perfectly doesn't mean that you need to give up necessarily your career for that to happen, but it does mean that we have to start thinking differently. And you know what's funny about this passage? They, like, suffered for pulling that string. Like, they went to jail 
and yet they were able to sing psalms, like songs and hymns in jail. And then because they were in jail and able to do that, then like the jailer, who's a part of the whole system, he's in on it. He was like going, well, I want that kind of God. So the jailer gets saved. His whole house gets saved. And you're like, oh, great. The story should end there. You see, if you pull the strings on things, like good stuff can happen there. Sure. And yet Paul and Silas still suffered. And you know what was also interesting at the end of the passage? They were going to let him out of prison. Like, they were going to be let out of prison. But Paul wasn't going to have any of it. Howard Thurman, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which we sell at the book table, he was a mentor of Dr. King. This book was so influential to Dr. King that uh, he would keep it in his front pocket on a regular basis just to kind of take it and thumb through it and, and think about it. And um, there's a little part here uh, that I want to I read to you because there's a contrast we have between Jesus and Paul. Okay, I want you to see if you can pick up on it here. If a Roman soldier pushed Jesus into a ditch, he could not appeal to Caesar. He would be just another Jew in a ditch. Standing always beyond the reach of citizen security, he was perpetually exposed to all the, quote, arrows of outrageous fortune, quote. And there was only a gratuitous refuge, if any, within the state. What stark insecurity. What a breeder of complete civil aid, a breeder of complete civil aid, moral nihilism, and psychic anarchy. Unless one actually lives day by day without a sense of security, he cannot, under, he cannot understand the worlds that separated Jesus from Paul at this point. See, here's what Paul had in his back pocket the whole time. He wasn't just Jewish, he was Roman. So he had privilege. And guess what he did? He used his privilege. Matter of fact, I wonder this. I wonder if his privilege was so a part of his life and his God was so big as part of his life that he knew he could start pulling on threads and realizing that as much as that would take from him because he was a still Roman citizen, boom, there's the card. See, what if we started using our privilege in those kind of ways? Like, combination of this, really big God who loves you and is for you, and because of the color of your skin and where you grew up and what you were handed, you can step into things, and sure, there's consequences, but like, you'll still get to play this card. Like, maybe there's people you know. Maybe there's like networks you, you, you have. And sometimes we have to stop and go, I don't have networks. Well, yeah. Do you have a decent job and health insurance and kind of are you friends with the people and whatever? Like, yeah, you're like, oh my gosh, it builds out. I have all this privilege. And you're like, now what if I use that for a hookup and not just a handout? Like, what if I just didn't think about people who were not privileged as just handing things out, but like now hooking them up? And maybe it's just for 24 hours. Maybe it's for longer. I don't know. But it's letting things irritate us enough. And I'll follow this up with this by Ajoma Olu. She said, when we identify where our privilege intersects with someone else's oppression, we'll find our opportunities to make real change. Like real change. Like it's letting those things irritate us and letting those strings be pulled. This passage traditionally 
I get it, is preached about that when you're in prison, you can rejoice and like the God will meet you and then others will come to know Christ. That's real and that's good and that's amazing. This passage is also about a 12-year-old girl who is oppressed and enslaved and Paul has the guts to pull a thread and deal with the consequences. And I love this thought. Like there's a, I'll end with this. There's this quote in your bulletins from Mother Teresa. It says, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples. You know the ripple I love here in the story? Paul goes to Macedonia. 1,900 years later, Agnes is born in Macedonia. Agnes decides to go to India. And there's like a 21-year-old boy who's never understood anything about brokenness or privilege or anything. And his name's Robin, and he stares at that. And it messes with him for like 15 years before he realizes what he's looking at. Like, I love those ripple effects. I love the things we never get to fully see or know, maybe in our own lifetime. But if we're willing to have enough courage just to pull it, just to throw the rock, just to see, who knows? And what would that be like for us? And now we're going to come to a table that we're reminded of something. There's a big enough God to go with us even if we end up in prison for a day or a week or things don't work for us for a season. There's a big enough God we have here to come and meet, to give us enough, in a sense, courage to step into things outside of these walls and to not walk out of here shaming ourselves for what we have. No, 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 no. Shame's a horrible motivator. It works for about a few years. And then you end up in therapy for a few years, realizing you can't go off shame any longer. So now you need a different motivation. It could just be like, hey, God's with me, God's for me, and I have a chance to do something now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're willing to be shoved into ditches And of all the places you could have showed up in space and time, you showed up as a Jewish man who didn't have the privilege and yet lived a life of such transparency, vulnerability, and ultimately sacrifice that it created the greatest ripple that the world has ever seen. And that is we now get to be here and we get to consider how loving you are to us. And so I pray now as we come to your table, we'd be reminded of that deeply, of your love for us, and how that gives us the courage we need to step into things in front of us outside of these walls. In the name we pray. Amen.